You're listening to the Stoic Solutions Podcast, practical wisdom for everyday life. I'm Justin Vakula, and this is episode 50, titled Stoicism and Mixed Martial Arts with Matt Thornton. Visit my new website, at StoicSolutionsPodcast.com, where you can connect with me on social media and listen to past episodes on various platforms. Support my work by becoming a donor through Patreon or PayPal to access special rewards, including the ability to have upcoming guests answer your questions, request custom podcast episodes, have group conversations with me and podcast listeners, and one-on-one discussions. Join my new Discord chat server, linked in show notes, for interactive discussion with me and people interested in Stoicism. Share, comment, like, subscribe, and leave reviews to help support my efforts and keep this project going. Email me with your thoughts, justinvacula at gmail.com. In today's episode, I have a conversation with Matt Thornton about parallels between Stoic philosophy and mixed martial arts, particularly Brazilian jiu-jitsu. Even though you might not practice martial arts, this conversation has lots to offer. We talk about mental toughness, discipline, goal-setting, personal development, handling adversity, challenging yourself, open-mindedness, ego, and much more. Matt Thornton was one of the early group of Americans to become involved with the art of Brazilian jiu-jitsu, having been introduced to it in 1991. He is also the first person from the state of Oregon to receive a black belt in the art. Matt has worked with some of the best MMA fighters, grapplers, and combat athletes in the world, including UFC Hall of Famers Randy Couture, Dan Henderson, and Forrest Griffin. He has also produced Oregon's first, and so far only, Mundial's world champion. New York Times bestselling author Sam Harris said, Matt Thornton is one of the clearest martial arts instructors I have come across. As of this writing, Matt has awarded 13 Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu black belts and his very own Straight Blast Gym has produced multiple UFC fighters, including the biggest UFC champion in history, Conor McGregor. Multiple Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu world champions, including black belt medalists, and currently stands as the world's leading organization for functional martial arts, combat sports, and self-defense. Matt's main emphasis over the last decade has been addressing superstition as it relates to the fields of sports training, combat sports, and martial arts. His methodology known as aliveness was designed as a tool to help people distinguish between fact and fiction. He is currently working on a book which will cover the topic of violence and its relationship to both combat sports and skepticism. Let's move on to the conversation. All right. Thank you for joining me for conversation today. Yeah, thanks for having me, Justin. Let's start with your gym and how you blend philosophy and martial arts. What led you to start a gym of your own? I was in love with jujitsu. I was in love with the arts that that I currently teach. Uh, The moment I saw them and I was kind of obsessed with them. And and even when I was working other jobs, I found the majority of my mental energy was going into thinking about that. And uh, I needed a place to train. And there was no gym like the kind of gym that I have in existence at the time. This was 25 years ago. And um, and those just didn't really exist. In order to actually have training partners, I had to start my own, which is what I did. And I did it not knowing that I would be able to make a living at it. So I didn't set out to try and make a living at it. And it just turned out that it worked out that way. And I I was happy to find there was a lot more people that wanted to do um, what I did. Not just the physical training, you have a large component of mental training within your curriculum. 
the philosophy part has always kind of been with the martial arts. Um, they've always been with the combat arts, whether Western or Asian. And what we do in and of itself forces people to kind of come to grips with mental aspects of training. So they're, a big part of what we do in jiu-jitsu is learning to become comfortable in uncomfortable situations. And if you can't learn to become comfortable in uncomfortable situations, you're honestly not going to be able to even do the sport. And people who, who really can't um, come to grips with that wind up having to quit. And so what we try and do is walk people through a process of learning how to do that um, in a very physical way that, of course, manifests itself mentally as well. And then along the way, the philosophy kind of comes comes into being. Yeah, it's interesting with stoicism, there's a lot of talk of dealing with the ups and downs of life, dealing with change, adversity, all of these things that's present in the martial arts as well as life in general. Right. This is very true. Yeah, the, the stoicism came to me later. There is an element of it, I think, that arises naturally in combat sports, because like I said, you, you have to become comfortable in uncomfortable situations. You have to learn to manage, for lack of a better word, manage your feelings in, in the moment. Uh, things like fear and anxiety that are all parts of competition. And all, all combat athletes learn how to, in one, one form or another, manage those, which in and of itself is a form of stoicism. And um, the good athletes uh, the champion athletes, by definition, they're, they're good at those skill sets. It's part of what we do. Right. So there's a mindful recognition of that rather than just ignoring it or pushing through it. We want to contest with that. How are we feeling? Why are we feeling it? And let's work to get through those. Exactly. Exactly. It's a big part of, uh, of the sport for sure. Mm -hmm. Now, your core concepts, you mentioned truth as the first concept. Yes. How do you relate that yes. to training? Well, when I started martial arts, I uh, I was obsessed with martial arts since I was a kid. And for whatever reason, I was obsessed with the, the kind of the question, which I think a lot of little kids have, which is like, what works and what doesn't in a fight? And when you're watching Kung Fu movies, and, you know, especially, I, I grew up in the 70s, and with the exception of a couple of Bruce Lee films, which he brought a, I'm not going to say realistic, but a more realistic version of fighting to film where he was using, you know, actual boxing and wrestling in some of his fights. And prior to that, it was really just Chinese opera. So you had people flying in the air and spinning, and it was very unrealistic, you know. And um, and the what worked and what didn't work was important to me. And I didn't want to do something that wasn't true. And, and um, it struck me that a lot of the martial arts, even if I wasn't able at the time to, to be able to articulate why when I was young, were bullshit and uh and the, the instructors that were teaching them were lying to people or and or delusional themselves engaged in an act of self-delusion and passing that along and i recognized that as being something that was unhealthy and so for me truth in combat or, or truth in martial arts was the guiding kind of force the the categorical imperative that i was operating under from the very beginning and as that progressed and we started to talk to people and i, I started to teach and travel around the world and give seminars and do different things that I've done over the last 20 years, I would talk about truth in martial arts, why truth is important, um, why we want our beliefs to align with reality as much as possible, especially when we're dealing with a topic like violence, mm -hmm. and try and give them an epistemology to help them do that, which I've always called aliveness, which okay. is where we're, which is the opponent process of martial arts. If you get rid of that, if you stop if you take away the opponent process, if you take away the self-correcting mechanism, if you take away the desire to be involved and engaged in something that's true, 
then it very it's 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 amazing how rapidly what you're doing or what someone is is engaged in or a group of people I should say is engaged in will descend into superstition and nonsense and it happens very quickly and the martial arts is just a great case study of that because it's such a physical as sam harris has said before it's delusion made physical i mean it's it's much easier to show and prove in a way with martial arts than it is with a lot of other topics right it's it's quite easy to see the results right and even the process yeah, exactly. the process if you're going to have a, a man who believes he could use psychic energy to move people around and he's going up against a fighter of a different school who has a solid foundation well that's probably not going to turn out well for him exactly so it, it has a benefit it you know it's nice that way in, in that it's uh not as tricky as it is with some other subjects but i i, I believe that that travels across all topics and that truth is always important and once you learn those skill sets and you have that that ability to think critically then of course you can you can take that same tool chest and apply it in different topics and and it becomes useful well beyond martial arts right so it's starting with a solid foundation and something that's been tested something that works for others right yeah repeatability is important efficiency is important you know the way we we approach the martial arts and what we do is I'm not going to tell people that this is something that's going to work because it's something that one or two or three people have done or that that only I can do or only a fighter with a certain form with certain genetic gifts can pull off but I mean things that we do in every day the fundamentals of the delivery systems that we use in martial arts in, in SBG and in my gym are repeated experiments that have been done by thousands of people you know around the world so it's very empirical and that's part of why I love it. Right. That, that's interesting. I think it parallels well with Stoicism as the Stoics will look for a solid foundation from which to live and start with certain core values and virtues and ask, what does the good life look like? So perhaps in right. your area, you're going to wonder, what does a good fighting style look like? What kind of mindset do I want to have? You're not just going into it willy nilly. You're, go you're going in with a solid plan, a strategy, a foundation. Right. Very true. Good. And you're also asking questions throughout the process too, right? If someone sees a flaw with a certain technique or perhaps something they can bring to the table to improve, then we can go ahead and test that and adapt based on some new information that we get. Always, you know, people have to be willing to and open to belief revision. And the fundamentals, what I call fundamentals, aren't things that are most basic, but actually the things that are most important. And those things tend to transcend individual bodies. They transcend culture. They transcend time. The example I have to give is a rear naked choke. There's a best way to do that. And it's been proven time and time again. And, and there's a million different ways to get into that choke. And different fighters will have all kinds of different setups that they'll use to try and acquire the choke. But once once you're in that position, there's a mechanically best way based on you know how we're built as human beings to cut off the blood supply to another human being's head. That is not a Chinese way. It's not a Brazilian way. It's not a Canadian way. It's not a way that's, bet, that's best now and wasn't best during the time of the Egyptians. It transcends time. It transcends culture. It transcends geography. It transcends bodies. Those things that, that are like that, I, I refer to as fundamentals. Those tend to be fairly universal. They, they tend to be repeatable and they tend to be efficient. And that is the core of the curriculum. But once you get past that and you get into all the nuance and the, and the counter for counter movement and the setups and it's almost infinite and it's always evolving. And that is a almost like an arms race where two different athletes who are competing against each other 
one's going to develop a particular setup or sweep that works for them for a while, then the other one has to learn how to shut it down. And, and within that, that process is much smarter than I am or any particular coach is. And we have to let the students and the athletes, you know, play and go where that process takes them. And that's almost infinite. Just keeping an open mind. And here it's, yes, going into those uncomfortable situations. And there could be a lot to right. learn from that, a lot of lessons, not only in how to win a fight, but how to be a better person, right? Right. Hopefully, yes, for sure. <laughs> Hopefully. So how have people gone wrong in approaching or executing martial arts? I break, I break that up into two parts. So if they're involved in a, what I call a fantasy-based martial art, and, you know, Aikido or Kung Fu or Wing Chun or one of those arts, and they're a little scared and insecure to begin with. And oftentimes when people are scared or insecure, that will manifest itself in behavior that tends to be anything other, anything but kind. Right. And you can see sometimes when people are jerks, oftentimes they're just scared or insecure, especially males. And then they get involved in a fantasy based martial art where they're told that they're learning these things. They're, they're told that they're acquiring this persona or this perception of being someone that can, can defend themselves or fight against somebody that's bigger and stronger, but it's all based in delusion. And whether they even realize it or not, they wind up defending a position that's, that's not grounded in something true. And a lot of times what happens with, with those guys is they go from being scared and insecure and kind of jerks to being even bigger jerks. The reverse of that process is if you take those same young men, same kids, and you put them in a functional martial art, it could be wrestling, it could be judo, it could be a boxing gym, it could be Brazilian jiu-jitsu, it could be any of the arts, the, the delivery systems that we teach. It's such a humbling process because failure is a necessary part of the process. Being uncomfortable is a necessary part of the process. Getting tapped out or hit in the head over and over and over again is a necessary part of the process. There's nobody that becomes good at boxing that doesn't get beat up. In, in the beginning, there's right. nobody that, that becomes good at wrestling that doesn't get taken down over and over and over and over again. So within that process, they start to develop real confidence, meaning confidence in a skill set that's actually provable, measurable skill set. And from that, that often and certainly can lend itself to uh, a demeanor that's kinder and being able to walk through the world and, and have the ability to, to be gentler and kinder, kinder with people. And it often does. Having said all that, there's still people in my sport that are jerks, right? You know, there's just people that, that are kind of dicks, and, and then they become jerks who can fight well. It, I think it would surprise people if they showed up at a jiu-jitsu tournament or they were backstage at, at your typical MMA show. My experience has been that the vast majority of fighters and the vast majority of, of wrestlers and the vast majority of combat athletes in general tend to be pretty pretty nice guys, uh, especially if you're comparing them to just a general group of, of random males that are out in the street or fans. Sometimes the fans aren't so nice, but the actual athletes tend to be fairly nice people. And the ones that compete the, no the most often tend, tend to be the nicest because they've, by definition, been humbled, right? Mm. It's not a guarantee. It's not a guarantee of becoming a, a better human being. I do think at some point people have to have a certain level of maturity and they, and they have to want to be a better human being to engage or even think about how they're treating other people. But it certainly helps. And I definitely think it can be used as a path towards becoming a better human being. Right. So if they can cultivate that motivation, perhaps set a goal, work toward it, there can be a lot of personal growth in that. Right. Absolutely. Right. And with the humility comes a recognition that, well, we don't have all the answers. There's still more to learn. There are other people who have looked into these ideas a lot more than I have, and maybe I can learn from right. them. And there's a sense of community there, right? Right. And recognition that there's always 
lots of people who are better than you and lots of people who aren't as good as you. And, and on any given day, you can lose. All those things uh, tend, to, tend to humble people. Can you talk a little bit about goal setting and self-control that people have with martial arts? Sure. The objectives for martial arts and what we do in, in functional martial arts tend to be related to you know how you're performing with with your opponents. So everything involves resisting opponents, whether we're drilling, even though that resistance is adaptive and it may go up and down depending on the circumstances, it might even be very light. There's always a level of resistance because once you take that out, then there's no timing. With absent aliveness, there's no timing and absent timing, there's no, you're not really gaining any real functional skill. You're, you're, you tend to be wasting your time. So we're always drilling with, with a certain level of resistance. And then when you go actual sparring, which is is not drilling, but you're actually engaged in combat with other people who also know what they're doing, you're going to find weaknesses, you're going to find strengths, you're going to find holes. You're always, if you're going up against somebody that's worthy, you're going to find holes in your game, and those become your objective. And that's what you, if you're smart, that's what you go back and work on and you correct your mistakes. And the people who tend to get good quickest are people who don't repeat their errors. And the people who don't get, as, as obvious as this sounds, the people who don't get good or tend to stay at a level for a long time are people that continue to repeat the, their errors. Sometimes that's intelligence, but it's usually not intelligence, especially because there's coaches around that who have a lot of experience. And who, if you're not figuring it out yourself, what you're doing wrong, they'll give you the information. So the vast majority of the time when people aren't correcting those mistakes, it's ego, right? They're very strong physically. And then maybe sometimes they can get away with doing something that when they go up against a better fighter, actually costs them the match because it's it's a technically inferior way to you know it leaves you open but they're so committed to beating that guy at that time they're more committed to that than they are allowing themselves to be in a vulnerable vulnerable position or allowing themselves to lose so that they can figure out where their holes are that they kind of stalemate and they'll, they'll be tough they never get up into the upper levels where they could compete against a really good athlete and nine ninety percent of the time that tends to Ego. And it's usually men. And I've, I've found universally that teaching this art to women who are competitive and, and enjoy the art, if they really love what I do, they always learn faster than the men do. And I think part of that is just they tend to have less of those uh, ego-driven issues. Right. So self-confidence can be a great thing, but it can be a vice if it's too much, right? And that ego, if we're thinking, yes, I have everything figured out. I'm not going to listen to what this person has to say. I'm just going to make it work. That could be a big mental block, as you say. Right. So if we talk at like a, if somebody's very arrogant, let's talk about like a very strong and athletic young man comes into my gym, but he doesn't know anything. He doesn't know any jujitsu. He's not wrestled. He doesn't know any jujitsu, but he's very strong. He's very athletic. And then he sees one of, one of my female athletes that's actually a, a combat athlete. I have world champions at my gym, like Amanda Lowen, who's a world champion black belt competitor at my gym. But if you just look at her, you wouldn't know. Her ears aren't messed up or anything you know she just looks like a athletic young woman and she's going to submit him she's going to make him tap 14 times in the course of 10 minutes most of those guys will leave right so if they can't get past that then they're never going to get good at jujitsu like their ego will always be they'll never be able to fight like she can fight because they can't get past that now if they can get past that and they can stay and they start to learn a little more and a little more they'll find that they can last maybe a little bit longer with her or some of the other men if they go really hard to hang on really, really tight or they can they can allow themselves to feel what it feels like when they're getting put in bad positions and then try and compensate uh try and um 
overcome those bad positions with better technique as opposed to being more explosive or, or hanging on a little bit longer. And so if their goal is to try and last for eight minutes by just hanging on real tight as opposed to let me figure out what I'm doing technically incorrectly and then fix that even though that might make, that might cause me to lose in five minutes instead of eight, mm-hmm. then they're going to get better better faster. And some of them can't do that. And so then they'll get tough and they'll be, they'll get to a certain level, but they'll never get past that level. And to get up to the upper levels of the sport of, of what I do, you have to be willing to say, when guys get in, when an athlete gets in on my back or whatever it is, that's a weakness for me and they'll submit me. So you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to, I'm going to have put a bunch of people on my back. And if I hang on real tight or I just explode or roll around, sometimes I escape. So I'll just keep doing that. Well, that's not going to get you any better. Or let me, you know, talk to my coach or think about it and because jujitsu is in retrospect always common sense. Figure out a technical solution for this and I'm gonna just keep repeating this and no matter how many times I get tapped out until I'm able to escape technically and then I move on to the next thing. And those are the people that become um champion competitors. Those are the people that meddle. Right. So it's facing the problem head on rather than just complaining or blaming others. There's a lot of talk in stoicism about that, about taking accountability and working to do what we can to make ourselves exactly. better, realizing what we can control, what's outside of our control and, and work, working on that to improve. Exactly. Look, look things in the face and see them as they really are, as Marcus Aurelius would. And that's a, that's a necessary component for, for what we do. Right. And even recognizing that weakness is very beneficial as some fighters perhaps won't. Why am I losing? Why am I having a difficult time here? So there should be a sense of gratitude, I think, in understanding the areas we can improve on. Absolutely. Yeah. Losing is part of the process. Any Anybody that doesn't come to grips with that and realize not only is it part of the process, it's a necessary component. So if they're in a position where they're never losing, then they're just not challenging themselves enough to grow. Mm-hmm. So they have to come to grips with that reality. Yes. What good would it be if you were to just uh, have no challenge day to day and not be able to improve, right? Right. Some people might look for that, but is there really much benefit in that? No. If you're going up against a worthy opponent or if you're doing a drill and during the drill, you're 100% successful every time, right? Whatever. There's, you can drill anything. Let's imagine, take martial arts on the occasion. Let's imagine a batting practice and you're in a batting cage and every time you hit the ball, it's a home run and you do it over and over and over and over again. Well, after a certain point, yeah, you're still getting repetition swinging the bat. And you're getting repetition hitting the ball mm-hmm. and there's positive feedback there. But obviously that's a, that's a pretty slow pitch coming at an angle that you've already nailed, right? And then as soon as you start to turn that, the speed up on the machine or change the angle or throw a curveball, you can no longer hit the, hit the ball. You always have to be challenging yourself. Good. Yes. And the Stoics talk a lot about not just focusing on the body or the mind, but rather to be concerned with both of them not neglect one right. or the other. And here, perhaps besides the physical training and the exercising, as you said, you engage in a lot of lectures and talking about approach, talking about theory, talking about philosophy. Yes, that's a big part of what I do. You know, a lot of that is talking about the, the actual epistemology of aliveness and explaining, it, explaining that, especially years ago when that was less common than it is now. Um, and then these days, it, it, I'll often talk about uh, the difference between training smart and training hard, being intelligent, not not doing things that are going to cause people to get traumatic brain injury, which is something that we're we're very concerned about in in our sport these days. And and which is a I want the athletes to be healthy when they're fifty and sixty. I want them not 
to be cognitively healthy and physically healthy. And so training for longevity and understanding that the great value that can come with with doing what we do, if you are smart enough to think about what you're doing and how you're approaching things and how you can better yourself as opposed to just coming to the gym and having somebody tell you what to do and you just do it. So a little introspection goes a long way in anything, but especially true in, in what we do. Good. How do you think the virtue of courage might manifest in mixed martial arts? Well, anytime you're frightened to death and you do something anyway, then you're being brave, right? Brave is brave is one of the only virtues where in order for you to be actually engaged in the process of being brave, you have to be faking it. It's interesting that way. And every combat athlete in the world, every MMA fighter, even jujitsu competitor is brave in that sense because they're all scared walking to the cage. They're all scared. The world champions are scared and some of some more than others. So for some, for some people before they take a fight, they might not sleep for three or four days. They might build up to the event wow. is always worse for them usually than the event itself. I mean, once the door shuts or the match, the match starts and you touch hands, or whatever, then you're going to be reacting and, and your body's going to take over and, and you, and you do what you do what we do. But up to that point, when you can sit around and think about it, think about all the things that can go wrong or think about being humiliated in front of all your friends and family and all the audience that's going to be watching you and all that stuff, it can drive mm -hmm. these guys, men and women, crazy, right? But, and they won't be able to sleep. They won't be able to eat. They'll have diarrhea. They'll throw up. I had one athlete many years ago who he was, at the time, he was my best grappler. So he had, he had went on a long unbeaten streak of wins of submissions well, nobody else probably besides myself and him knew is that before every one of those matches he would go into the bathroom and throw up for 40 minutes he would just wow. vomit whether he had drank water or whatever it was he would just if he hadn't drank and drank anything or eaten anything he would dry heave for 20 minutes that's how nervous he was strangely enough he performed fantastically right so you, you never really know how an athlete's going to respond in the match, some people respond much better than they do in the gym, and some some people it's the opposite. But for all all of them, they're nervous as hell, and yet they do it. And when they do it, and if you're if you're just a participant, if you're in the audience, or you're watching them on TV, and you watch them walk up to the cage, and they're smiling, and they're slapping people's mm -hmm. hands, and they're it's all an act. It, it's a complete case of acting. And even during the fight or during the match, if they're tired or hurt, it's their job to make sure that the other opponent doesn't see that. You don't want you don't want to show your weakness to them. And so it all becomes a big act. And by definition, that's bravery. Good. So it's facing those things head on as we talk about. And yes, getting back into that uncomfortable realm. And even with all the audience and a lot that's on the line, they still go ahead and still do it. Right. If they didn't have to act, if they didn't have to pretend like they weren't frightened to death or nervous as hell, wouldn't be brave. Now, uh, what about bravery being a vice? In some cases, people can be foolhardy and maybe take on too much of a challenge and maybe put themselves at tremendous personal risk. Yeah, that's a bit different. And I, I wouldn't necessarily label that as brave. In that case, you're usually you're, you're dealing with somebody that's mentally ill, maybe, perhaps, or just stupid. Anybody that is of reasonable intelligence and not, at, in the moment, at least suffering some form of mental illness or drugs or anything like that, they're going to have a sense of personal safety and a sense of of fear and a fight or flight response that normally comes along with with your body and your person being threatened physically. Someone who doesn't have that, I think, is dealing with a situation where I wouldn't label that necessarily as brave either because they're not making a conscious choice to overcome a fear for whatever reason related to their brain chemistry. They're not feeling fear at that moment. 
Yeah. Right. And, and that, that also to me wouldn't qualify as courage. Right. So it takes some wisdom to identify which situations to get involved with, to know our, know what's appropriate for us and to not take on too much or too little even. Right. Good. If Stoics could take one message from your training philosophy, what do you think it would be? Wow. One message. Um, or maybe a few. <laughs> I think that the core message, a uh, more universal message that everybody that does what I do has to come to grips with fairly early on in their journey, and that is very stoic, which is learning to be comfortable in uncomfortable situations and all that entails, being able to control your mind, being able to continue on with your body. That's just a necessary component for what we do because every day when you're in practice, you may, you know, it's fun. I don't, I don't mean to make it sound like it's not fun. I do what I do because it's fun. Jiu-jitsu in particular, where you're not getting punched in the head and you're just wrestling with someone, grappling mm. with somebody, is awesome. It's, it's a beautiful, fun thing to do. But there's going to be moments where you've got some big, heavy person on top of you who's, you know, crushing you, trying to crush you, trying to choke you. That's not comfortable. And so you have to learn to become comfortable in those situations or at least comfortable enough to overcome those situations and eventually persevere. And then you have to learn to handle that outcome, to handle that in a way that's somewhat graceful or somewhat dignified. You know, we don't allow people to throw water bottles across the floor or give, a, you know, have a tantrum when they lose. And so all those things become really, really important. And, and those, I think, are core, relate directly to the core messages of, of all the Stoics. For me personally, I find myself being the most drawn to Marcus Aurelius and one of the sayings that he said in particular, which I find very useful and I, I have to repeat to myself often and do so many times a day is to be strict with yourself and lenient with others. Mm. And I think so often um, we tend to do, I tend to do human beings just in general, we tend to do the opposite where, and you can see it every day in politics, you can see it every day in interpersonal disputes where people become hypocrites. And con we get into this position where we're pointing fingers at everybody else and forgetting about what we ourselves are doing, which, of course, is the exact opposite of what he was advocating for. And the more I, I follow, I remember to follow his advice on that, the better my life tends to turn out to be and the, the better a human being I am and the better outcomes I seem to be involved in. So um, that's been very helpful for me. Good. Yeah. Setting high standards for yourself, making progress, facing challenges. These are, these are some good things rather than, yes, as he also says, we're not, we're not made to just uh, be under the covers and sleep all throughout the day, right? Rise to the occasion, right, right. take on something which we can show our character, show our virtue and test ourselves, do the work of a human being. Yeah. Right. Very true. You note that martial arts can be inclusive. You welcome women, children, law enforcement officials, and many demographics to join your gym. Can you talk about this? Right. Yeah, I think that um, part of what makes community like we have at my gym and SBGs in general so so awesome is the fact that it is uh, it is truly a pure meritocracy, and no one cares if you're a Democrat or you're a Republican or you're a police officer, or a stockbroker, a construction worker, or a neurosurgeon, male or female. Everybody's on the mat. Everybody's wearing the same kind of uniform or or workout gear. Rotate partners, and you touch hands with somebody, and you're rolling with them, and it, it's kind of a beautiful thing that way and you wind up socializing and hanging out with and talking to people that you for many people otherwise never run into you know if, if they're only meeting people at their job and occasional social situations so jujitsu is and and 
martial arts is an interesting thing that way and that it, it really does become an inclusive community on any given day if you were to show up at one of my classes you'll find people as old people in their 60s and a lot of people in their early 20s men women and every occupation from doctor to student to construction worker and they're all on the same mat and they're all equal in the sense of they're all engaged in the same activity and all that matters at that moment is the being present and doing that activity and the rest of it doesn't make any difference and you'd never be able to tell okay. and i think that 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 is that is good for people and the more are especially recently and by recently i mean the last several decades and with the advent of social media as human beings, there is less and less of that, where we tend to just spend time around people who believe what we believe and who come from the same educational background or lack of educational background that we had and who tend to do the same occupations that we do. And it's very easy for people to get sorted in the various different bubbles. And I'm not necessarily sure that, that that's such a good thing. Good. So it brings people together. And we have that engagement with people from all different walks of life. And within Stoicism, there's a call for a cosmopolitan attitude of being a citizen of the world, of engaging with others and being part of the human race, humanity, rather than just, yes, as you say, putting ourselves in our own circles. We see a lot of, yes, polarization on social media, in person, <laughs> right? A lot of conversations can go to quite a toxic extent, a lot of name calling yeah. and ill will inferring of nasty motives when it's not necessarily the case. Right. There's a shared goal, right? You're all working toward the same thing, the self-improvement, the learning, you're participating in a shared interest. Exactly. And I think it's enjoyable for people just to get away from all that and, and to walk into an environment that's the exact opposite of that. It's part of why what we do is uh, attract so many people, I think. And perhaps you've made some good friends along the way as well. Yeah. All my great friends, I have people that have been with me for two decades that I've that have been part of this art and have come to me this way. It's just, a, you know, it is my life. So yeah, it's been beautiful that way. Right. Within Stoicism, there are a lot of calls to be very careful about who we choose as friends, to examine their character very carefully before we let them inside of our circles. And and here you're having quite intimate contact with others, so the physical proximity, the trust you have in others, and yes, the shared goals, the shared concerns. So I could see that that could be a good building ground for friendships. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, and perhaps also a cure, at least temporarily, for loneliness, as I see that that's a common concern with people, not really feeling that they fit into a certain community or just not being content with their own time. Yeah, loneliness, uh, even physical contact. And, you know, the act of, if you look at animals, all animals, when they're young and they play and they wrestle and they fight, it's very natural. Human kids left to their own devices, young boys will mm. wrestle and, and fight. And that, disappears to the point of being non-existent as soon as people tend to leave high school and unless they're wrestling in college what average young man or or young woman is fighting with her peers physically mm -hmm. right none it, that i think is very important in and of itself and it, it's a cure for a lot of different things and it's unbelievably cathartic and people will come in stressed out and worried about all these other things and then they'll get on the mat and they'll have four or five good matches with people who are actually friends and at the end of it feel awesome and that is very that's something i think the greeks and romans of course understood intimately obviously we know that plato and, and many of the stoics were wrestlers and, and and engaged in that activity and they wrote 
right. uh, about how important that was and having that connection with the with the physical along with the intellectual. And I think that's something that's been to a large degree lost. And we help bring that back into people's lives in a way that otherwise would not exist. And I'm not saying we're the only thing that can do that. People can join rugby leagues or other things, but there's something unique in what we do too, because what we do is connected to that idea of of hand-to-hand combat, and, and that has played such an integral part in our evolutionary biology, our existence from the very beginning, that it just taps so many different outlets that are so important for people. Good. So people find a good deal of meaning and personal fulfillment as well. Yeah. And they leave class feeling good. <laughs> so a balance of learning, a balance of leisure, and engagement with others. Engagement with others, healthy competitiveness, physicality, intellectually stimulating, challenging. I could go on. Many, many benefits. Good. All right. One of the reasons I like doing some of these podcasts is to reach an audience that I wouldn't otherwise reach. So for those of those who are listening to me now that might uh, listen to your podcast and be interested in stoicism, but not have engaged in in the kind of functional martial arts that I'm talking about, I would, I would just encourage as many people as possible to, especially Brazilian jiu-jitsu. And I want to just draw a distinction. I'm not talking about Japanese jiu-jitsu, which unfortunately is very much a fantasy-based martial art, but Brazilian jiu-jitsu as was originally uh, brought to the United States by the Gracie family. Those schools exist all across the United States now. When I started 25 years ago, I was the first and only school in Portland, but now there's 30, who knows, and they're all over. And so wherever someone is listening to me right now, there is probably one of those schools. And and I would just urge everyone to go down to that school, meet the instructor, see if they feel comfortable. If they feel comfortable with the instructor and they feel comfortable with the environment, it feels good, try it. Just give give it a try for two or three days. And I think that it will be something that will bring a lot of, it will enrich their life in many, many different ways. I think there are a lot of misconceptions about happiness in today's society that people will often focus on pleasure and what feels good. But here through the martial arts, people have a different kind of happiness, a contentment, a level of satisfaction that they have, that they could feel good, as you said, coming out of it. Can you talk more about that? When I think about happiness, and I I draw from my own personal experience, I'm 49 years old. This time in my life, I've had many times where I've experienced happiness and the opposite. And I think most people will find what I'm saying to be true in that if you search it out as a goal in and of itself, then it's going to be hard to find and perhaps counterproductive when people start to go down the route of just being a hedonist. It always tends to backfire. But when it comes as a result of hard work and it comes as a result of kindness and it comes as a result of of legitimately helping other people, in those moments where you're thinking about other people and you're not thinking about yourself, in those moments when you have actually earned something through hard labor and, and, and effort, then you happiness comes as a result as opposed to being a goal. That, I think, is something very important for people to remember. And the opposite, of course, is also true if you think about the moments, and this is certainly true for myself, but I, for anybody yourself or anybody listening, if you think about the moments where you're the most miserable or have been the most miserable, and I'm with the exception of the inevitable sorrows that come with life, like sickness or the death of someone that you love. Not those types of things, but the kind of misery that maybe be avoidable if you had a a different mindset. That that type of misery, if you think about that type of misery, it is always in a moment where people are intensely engaged in thoughts about themselves. 
So the less you think about yourself in terms of, oh, this, especially as a victim, this, I wish this hadn't happened to me. How could this person do that to me? I can't believe this person said that about me. Then the more miserable you become. And when you're instead actively engaged in a pursuit to benefit yourself and especially other people, because there is really a lot of, I think for, for normative human beings, there's a great deal of pleasure to be found in helping other human beings. And when you're actively engaged in the pursuit of trying to help other people, and it's hard work, and it's not easy, I think you'll find you're at your happiest. I certainly do. And then happiness comes not as a goal, but as a byproduct, as a symptom of the fact that you're living uh, life well. Good. So it's looking toward the future, looking in the present and not being so focused on the past or really dwelling on that as we could recognize the past and what has happened to us, but we can forge new paths ahead, find some meaning and prevail after some disaster that we've experienced in our lives. Everyone deals with suffering, right? But the question is, how yeah. are we going to respond to it? Yeah. Exactly. And I think the best way to respond to it is by minimizing the downtime. So my friend Paul Sharp talks about this a lot, but everybody trips up. We all trip up. But the real art is how fast you get up. And that's the job of a good coach is to try and minimize that amount of time. In most cases, not all cases, there's, there's exceptions. But in the vast majority of cases, if you're trying to help someone minimize the amount of downtime, the best way to do it is being with positivity and giving them some sense of hope. Because usually that positive voice, the voice of hope is the one that they're not listening to at that moment. And so that's the one they need to hear from you or from other people. That's what'll help pick them up. And then the next time you try and make that downtime a little bit shorter, I don't think anybody should go through life thinking it won't happen. Mm. Of course, it's going to happen, but we're going to minimize that downtime. So last time, you know, they stayed in bed for three days. This time we're going to get up after a day. You know, This time we're going to get up after an hour. And that, that downtime becomes shorter and shorter. That's not down, becomes more and more productive. And lo and behold, people start to find themselves being happy. Good. So that's good to recognize some little steps toward improvement that it's not going to be a huge improvement to begin with in most cases, right? It's going to be a gradual thing. Right. It's going to take some time. Take time and work, but they can do it. And right. I think that, that that element of hope is very important for people. Right. To give ourselves some credit, to not be too hard on ourselves, to set some reasonable expectations, common themes within the Stoic texts. Yes, absolutely. Finally, it's a passage from Seneca here. I think that can be quite fitting for our discussion. He writes, If the body can be trained to such a degree of endurance that it will stand the blows and kicks of several opponents at once, and to such a degree that a man can outlast the day and resist the scorching sun in the midst of the burning dust, drenched all the while with his own blood, if this can be done, how much more easily might the mind be toughened so that it could receive the blows of fortune and not be conquered so that it might struggle to its feet again after it has been laid low, after it has been trampled underfoot. Beautiful. Beautiful quote. Right. So here it's a, a mix of the actual physical pain that one might endure within training and being able to, yes, rise above it. And this can be a training that if we can excel in martial arts, if we can excel in one area of our life that might be quite difficult, well, perhaps we can have that hope, as you mentioned, that we can apply that to other areas in life as well. Absolutely. 
All right. Can you tell listeners more information about you, where they can find you online if you'd like to share any websites, social media, and talk about upcoming work? Personal website is mattthornton.org, so M-A-T-T-T-H-O-R-N-T-O-N.org, and they'll find all my essays and um, links to media and podcast things. I'll put yours up and this one up in there when, when it gets posted. To be able to, to and all, as well as all my events, then click on events, you'll see all the events and the seminars I do around the world this year are posted in advance. And if they're interested in, more interested in the martial arts aspect of what we do, then I would encourage them to check out straightblastgym.com, straightblastgym.com. And that has all of our locations around the world, of which there's more than 60 now in, in uh, most of the continents and different countries. And, and hopefully we'll have a location near them. But if not, like I said, uh, try out any pure Brazilian jiu-jitsu school, see if you feel comfortable. That's very important. And if you do, give it a shot. I think people will find um, it fits hand in hand with stoicism. Good. And social media, email, where people can find you there? Uh, yeah. If they go to mattthornton.org, they can reach all my social media, my Twitter, and my personal email is listed on there. And, and if they, uh, I, I'm definitely happy to hear from them and I'll, I'll make sure I write it back. All right. Very good. Thank you for your time today. Yeah. Thanks very much. Visit my website at stoicsolutionspodcast.com, where you can connect with me on social media and listen to past episodes on various platforms. Support my work by becoming a donor through Patreon or PayPal to access special rewards, including the ability to have upcoming guests answer your questions, request custom podcast episodes, have group conversations with me and podcast listeners, and one-on-one discussions. Join my new Discord chat server, linked in show notes, for interactive discussion with me and people interested in Stoicism. Share, comment, like, subscribe, and leave reviews to help support my efforts and keep this project going. Email me with your thoughts, justinvacula at gmail.com. Podcast music, used with permission, is brought to you by Phil Giordana's symphonic metal group Fairyland. The song titled Master of the Waves is from their album Score to a New Beginning. Find more information in the show notes. Have a great day.